Hey out there in Westeros land, we're back for a live episode filled with Q&A awesomeness. I've got the Radio Westeros team here again. Hello, Lady Gwen. Hello. Glad to be back with you. And of course, Yoke Boy from England. Hey, glad to be uh, with you again and looking forward to this live broadcast. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with this on Monday with Sean, our unsullied show watcher, and the, the functionality of the Q&A and the way this whole thing works is really neat. You guys get to ask questions, and we see them on our screen along with the upvotes, so we get to see which questions are the most popular. Instead of a preamble talking about the episode, I'm going to explain a little bit more about how this Q&A works. Like I said, we are live here, a nice live broadcast. Also, of course, it provides a lot more interactivity, which is fun for everybody. And we get to hear specifically what you guys are most interested in having answered and which topics are the hottest at the moment. Of course, we're going to cover all the areas, as we always do. We'll go from all the different locations. But we will focus more on the things that people most want to talk about. Of course, we do have plenty of things prepared. We got some good quotes and looked up a lot of great book-to-show parallels that will help make sense of all this and help us keep the two canons separate in our heads, which is a main goal of the book-to-show reviews. We're thinking of doing a lot more of this next season, and we may incorporate some of it in our regular off-season non-TV episodes as well from time to time. So we're thinking about ways to make the whole production a lot better and more fun for everybody. Okay, a quick breakdown before we dive in. We're going to start at kind of backwards the direction that we went last week. We're going to start at the wall and then go south to Stannis' campaign and then to Dorne. Then we'll cross the Narrow Sea, head over to Braavos. Then we'll go to Marine and the Pit. As we go through each location, we'll answer the questions, the Q&A questions that are relevant to that particular area. And then when we get through all the areas, we'll circle back and answer more questions, some that we missed because people are joining us late, or some that got upvoted later. So we'll have basically questions and answers throughout the episode, but mostly focused on the area that we're currently talking about. And as usual, we will then do our credits, and then we'll give you guys who don't want to be spoiled on episode 10 a chance to jump off. And those who do want to talk about the trailer, we've got plenty to discuss with regards to that, with what we think is coming in the last episode. A lot of clues from the trailer, lots of good stuff there. So we will certainly be talking about that at the end of the episode. And that will include Q&A questions. Some questions will be bumped to the end of the episode because they directly relate to those topics. Okay, one last thing. We will have to include some of the Winds of Winter spoilers that come from some of the spoiler chapters due to the nature of some of these scenes and how they're already crossing into that territory. It's too much of a challenge for us to forget what we already know from those spoiler chapters. So if you're overly spoiler conscious, well, I have a feeling that you're not watching the TV show at all if you're overly spoiler conscious for the book because we all know it's past the book in at least a few plot lines and getting even farther uh, the farther we go along. So, be aware of that. I don't know what the themes for this episode were, other than people being burned, desperation, sacrifice, feeling sad. <laughs> so, we'll just leave that as is and not worry about the themes too much. But, it is interesting to point out that this is only the second, or rather the fifth episode of all Game of Thrones episodes. Now there are 50, or 49 rather, that doesn't feature King's Landing. It's the second time this season that that's happened. And one person 
suggested that that is because Tyrion's not in King's Landing anymore, and I have to say that's probably a good good reason for that. Good point. Okay, also a shout-out to Red Team Review, doing reviews of all kinds of different TV shows, including Game of Thrones. Carmine runs the show over there, and he sent a lot of you our way in the last just day, day and a half. So I know a lot of you out there are fresh, new subscribers, and I wanted to say a welcome to you all, and, and uh, I send my regards back. <laughs> and as well as shout-out to Watchers on the Wall for their continuing excellent coverage of the show, especially behind-the-scenes things like casting and stills and photos and news from next season and locations. And uh, a personal thank you from us at History of Westeros for putting our reviews up on their site and helping spread the word. So, lots of, lots of people out there making History of Westeros better, and we really appreciate that. So let's go to the wall. Let's get going. Uh, we have this tense moment outside of the gates. I'm not so sure about the geography, about how this whole thing worked out. I kind of ranted on it a bit in the show-only review, so I don't need to go too deep into that again. But the only decent explanations I can see for this are that John specifically wanted them to let him in. He wanted to make them participate in the decision. Did you guys have any thoughts on that, or did you just see it, see it as kind of awkward? I, I thought, okay, it's awkward when you kind of analyze it, but I think they just wanted the shot of them going through the wall. It's that, that simple, the kind of hugely significant moment, and it's kind of got more meaning if they're coming through the wall that they were fighting to try and get through in the last season. I think that one thing that's particularly interesting about the wall is we're looking, we're all, we all kind of know what's coming. It's, it's a matter of how it's going to happen and it's, I'm amused by how much the fandom, the book reading fandom hates Ollie because <laughs> they just all expect that he's going to knife or shoot John. And it's funny to see a kid hated so much for having his parents slaughtered by wildlings. <laughs> and you wonder, and as we do with a lot of these scenes, we look for opportunities for subtle parallels to the books, but we also look for things that would fit in things that the show has introduced that might fit in in a different way with the book plots. For example, Carsey's daughters were shown standing next to Tormund, and Tormund, they made sure to show him putting his arm around them protectively. And I would think if they had more time, these kids could, you know, get to know Ollie and maybe change his mind a bit. But there's only one episode left. I can't, this doesn't seem to have time for that. Another thing we were surprised about is we all, all of us, I think, if I remember correctly, guessed that Sam would be sent to Bravos this episode, and that didn't happen. So, I'm sorry, not Bravos, to Old Town. So, I guess we're still expecting that next episode. You guys still expect to see that in episode 10, or any different thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I hope so anyway. I think it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So, I, I guess we'll see a good bit of shots of the wall. I think that's not surprising, uh, based on what's coming. They didn't spend a whole lot of time there this episode. It was more of a setup. So, other things to consider, possibly a conflict you know, infighting between the Wildlings and the brothers before something more major happens. One one, of course, could get into a fight with somebody because that's what happens in the books. We don't know who might be the parallel to Sir Patrick of King's Mountain. We thought we, we theorized earlier that it might be Dolorous Ed because of Ed's kind of, you know, what the hell you what the fuck you looking at moment there in the in Hardhome. Uh but Dollarus Ed doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would do that. He doesn't seem like the just uh, picking a fight 
with a giant type. He's he was intimidated. So I don't know. I, I hope that doesn't happen. Maybe that's just wishful thinking, but I, I don't see that happening. I don't see it as super likely. Um, so I don't know that we have a whole lot to say on the wall. I don't see a lot of questions that relate to it from the Q&A. So we're going to go ahead and move on. I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about the wall after the end of next episode. But it's pretty clear that people more want to talk about the other areas. In particular, this next location, the North, with Stannis' campaign. We're introduced to this, this scene with Melisandre sensing that something was about to happen. I think it was clever of them to show the, the scene from her point of view and to show that she was surprised so that we know for reasonable certainty that she didn't do it herself because that is a, a conspiracy theory I've seen floating around. And some people still think it's possible and I can't say they're absolutely wrong. It, it, the possibility is still there. But what did you think? What did you, how did you interpret that, Lady Gwen, with the way she reacted to that? Um, I thought she was seeing something in her flames, something that surprised her. Or perhaps she sensed the fire outside her tent. Definitely seemed surprised. I think that was the most, the only emotion she could show that maybe that wouldn't make it not seem like she was involved somehow. Because the way this fire started, it was, it didn't seem like, it didn't seem like, <laughs> like, like it would work that way. You know, like how, how did they pour the oil around those tents and everything? I'm not really, not really clear on that. And, and the way they got in, it, it seems like those, they, they, got all over to multiple parts in the camp. I'm not really, I'm not really clear what happened there. <laughs> Another thing about Melisandre was that she claims much earlier, several seasons ago, that she would have made all the difference at the, at the Battle of Blackwater, especially regarding the wildfire. Yet she couldn't do anything about this fire, apparently. So I don't know if that's just inconsistent or if it was just too late. But it's an interesting potential thing to um, see as a possible inconsistency. Uh, the sabotage, of course, was very successful. I wonder if he still has men hidden in the camp. What do you think about that, Yoke Boy? I think not. I think this was a classic hit and run. And as a kind of writing device, just as a very straightforward plot point to make Stannis more desperate in a very short space of time. So he is kind of cornered in to do what he did. Good point. So here's a question for us. Uh, first question from Minge Forever. I thought Stannis was supposed to be an experienced military commander. Camps need to be ditched and staked. Even Jamie learns that. How do you feel about Ramsay ex machina? A total baboon that always gets his way with no real consequences to speak of. <laughs> I like the way that question's worded. It's kind of a good point, too. It, doesn't, it seems like, to me, Davos explains it as, well, they, they know this country better than we do. But... That still, where are the ditches and stakes? And maybe the ground was too hard to dig, dig ditches, but it does seem like the camp wasn't particularly well set up for that. And so I do think that's a good point. That might just be the showrunners don't care about showing what an expert military commander would really do. Maybe they don't know that themselves. <laughs> so then we have Stannis sending Davos off. I think that was one of the first hints that we were all in for something very sad. Davos, he seemed to really know it was coming. He was kind of choking up a bit. I'm wondering how he's able to carve that stag with his hand in that shape. He's He's got some skills, I think. Yeah, I thought it was a very detailed stag. And I did see a picture. Kerry Ingram actually got to keep the stag 
which is pretty sweet, meant that, you know, it hadn't actually been burned in that scene at all. (laughs) You got burned alive, but you get this stag. There was someone, someone showed us on Twitter, I forget who it was, which listener pointed it out, but there's a shot where they show the stag, a close-up of the stag, and behind it is a candle, and it looks like the stag is wreathed in flame, and it is a kind of a very subtle bit of foreshadowing, kind of dark in, in retrospect, really. And it does a, she did carry the stag to the, to the pyre with her, but it was a stunt stag. The stunt apparently. stag went, yeah. <laughs> the, real, the real wooden stag survived. Let's see here, another good question. From Drew Hinkus, if the Kinslayer is cursed by gods and men, yet Stannis gets favorable results from burning Shireen, does that imply that Relor doesn't have an issue with Kinslaying? Or are the Westerosi just a bunch of superstitious rubes? In other words, is Kinslaying just a cultural taboo and there's the gods don't actually care about it? Good question. Kinslaying is definitely a huge issue in Westeros, and it hasn't really been touched on here. I guess Stannis' army is mostly mercenaries, so that kind of helps. But I think in the book, this is a much bigger thing. And, I, and, and we're going to be talking a lot in this section about how the, this, this scene is definitely going to be different in the books. But the Kinslaying angle is a really good place to start because it should be brought out more. And it's established, even in the show, that Kinslaying is a pretty big deal. So, I don't know. I don't know if they're just going to gloss over that. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? What 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 this could mean, or whether it's just something the showrunners are just kind of kind of sh- sweeping under the rug a little? Yeah, I think that's it's probably that is the case. I think what's interesting would be, um, you know, in the books, his army is made up of a lot of Northmen, and we know Kinslaying is particularly abhorrent to Northerners. So, this comes to pass in the books. Uh, what happens with his army next will be very interesting to think about. That's a that's a very good point. He has he hasn't recruited any Northerners in his in his army for the most part. They're probably a very tiny minority, just a few randoms, nothing, no, you know, particular force. Uh, so that is at least a nice touch by the showrunners that they at least knew that that would maybe they knew or maybe they just got lucky that that would make the scene harder to pull off. So I guess they planned that pretty well in that regard so before we talk about the actual burning one thing that makes this losing shireen as a character pretty sad especially for us here at history of westeros is that she's like the biggest history character in the show she talks about history she knows all the history she reads these books so we had a special fondness for her that that, you know that we no longer have we were we still have Tyrion, who knows a lot about history and some others but that was one cool change they made for her. She wasn't a historian so much. She she was well-read and, and knew some things in the books, but this is kind of a, a bit of a show change, I think, and that was something that I really appreciated. I also liked they had her not choose sides. When Stannis asked, which side would you choose, Rhaenyra or Aegon II, in the Dance of the Dragons, the historical event, and she said that her the way they had her answer that question just made the whole thing more sad. Like, she's this innocent that has the right idea and... She's the one that has to go. Why couldn't it have been Solis? <laughs> Sacrifice Solis instead. Right. Okay, so it was the major, our major, most recent major worry of the week was confirmed. And the behind the episode reveal was really big. This is where 
I, a lot of us book readers were a little upset. Lady Gwen, why don't you tell us what the deal is here? Uh, well, so in the behind the episodes segment, um, I'll just read the quote, or this is a condensed quote of what they said about this scene. When George first told us about this, it was one of those moments I remember looking at Dan. It's so horrible and so good in a story sense because it all comes together. From the beginning, from the very first time we saw Stannis and Mel, they were burning people on Dragonstone, and it's all come to this. So essentially, they've just confirmed that George told them this is what's going to happen in the books. And of course, the big question is, what would the circumstances be? We know they won't be the same because this point has already happened in the book. Stannis has already gotten to the Snowdender point and he doesn't even have Shireen with him. And he's pretty clear that he doesn't want to burn people. He burned the cannibals, but that he had to be convinced into that even. So it's got some things have to change. Some circumstances have to get presumably a lot more dire, I would think, at the very least, for Stannis to take this step. So... I do think that the circumstances are going to have to be a lot different. Maybe Stannis has lost a major battle. And this is why people are upset, because D&D, by making that reveal, have given us a straight-up book spoiler, where before it was ambiguous and we could say, oh, well, we don't know for sure that Shireen gets burned in the books. And some people still hold out hope that. Personally, the way it was worded, the way that D&D worded it, it seems pretty clear. I know, Yoke Boy, you have some, some thoughts on that. And uh, let, let's let you run with this for a minute. You've got a lot to say on this. Yeah, okay. First of all, I want to say that all three of us and Ashea, we all listened to to the interview together and we all agreed that it wasn't ambiguous because there is still some debate. And I, I, it's personally, I think people are clutching at straws. I thought it was very straightforward what he meant. So I, maybe people disagree with us still, but but that's all four of us were very unbiased and, and we thought it was a kind of confirmation of sorts you know i'm a pretty big Stannis fan so for me yeah for, for me to say that, like i held out hope but it uh, unfortunately i do think that the circumstances could make it a little more understandable but it's still going to be a harsh moment whenever it is yeah I, I found it quite interesting that as soon as the episode aired lots of people were accusing D of you know, not understanding the character and character assassination as often happens. And, and then the the interview came out and then everyone is angry at them for, for you know, revealing a spoiler. So, you know, in a weird, weird way, they're kind of in between a rock and a hard place. But um, anyway, I'm very cautious about things from the show. I've said that before, but I, I thought this was a pretty strong... Uh, confirmation albeit we we all think it will happen in a different time a different moment and a different situation way down the line and you know i've given it a lot of thought this concept of stannis burning shireen i think that it actually makes quite a bit of sense in stannis's arc he's been really desperate to fulfill his destiny of both sitting on the iron throne and becoming azora high He's obviously being misled by Emel about the Azor High thing, and he's got this kind of fake Lightbringer. So that already hints to an arc of tragedy, in my opinion. He's he's thinking he's got this kind of greatness, this you know one in a million rebirth of a heroic figure, and he's really just got a, f a fake kind of sword with nothing special about it. Um, we do see Stannis quite 
Um, oh, sorry, I, I missed something out. Uh, Stannis has a black and white way of thinking about his ambitions that we see quite often. And, you know, if you think about it, that really gives him a lot in common with the kind of evil bird on his shoulder, Melisandre, who is also black and white, albeit she's more of a religious fanatic that's kind of influencing Stannis with these promises, really. I'm not sure he believes what she believes to the core. I don't think that's the case at all. We do see Stannis quite desperate sometimes in trying to fulfil his ambition, and perhaps this desperation will grow into the winds of winter and perhaps beyond because we're not even sure that this would happen in winds it could be something we see in the last book and he's got this well-established and recurring theme of sacrifice and if it rears its head again we could see him having to make the choice that we did on the show you know making the ultimate sacrifice of his own daughter um, but it's worth remembering that he was prepared to kill his own brother, Renly, okay? And his nephew, Edric Storm, would have definitely burned if it wasn't for Davos. So if you look at it in that light, you know, is it really that much of a stretch to think further along down this continuing story, perhaps in a time of darkness and deep desperation for Stannis, that his daughter faces the same danger? It would be it would be a lot more I think easier for people to swallow if it was Stannis sacrificing his daughter because of the threat of the White Walkers rather than just to get on the Iron Throne. I think that's a big part of the character assassination people are referring to, and I think they're they're not wrong. Even though I think that they're some of the complaints might be a little misguided, but I think that one is right is pretty straightforward. And I think it might be really accurate because they're they've changed Stannis from what's well, again we don't know we probably is going to be much more dire circumstances, possibly something to do with the White Walkers in the Long Night or the, the Battle for the Dawn, whatever you want to call it, rather than just trying to sit on the Iron Throne, which is a difference between changing his ambition to trying to save humanity. It could still be about the Iron Throne for him in, in both cases. Well, in the TV show in the last episode, uh, Mel did say to him, you've got to become king before the Long Night. So I see his kind of race for the throne is very much intertwined with becoming a savior figure you know i i think that the two are part of the same thing for him now in both canons but um stannis's story you know it could turn out to be a really kind of tragic one slightly macbethian a, a, a man who gives everything to get what he wants but all along the way he was misled kind of buying the blindness of his own ambition. I think that would be a really strong theme and arc. And, you know, one of the reasons I think this all makes sense. Um, I'm also wondering if he might end up sticking his sword through Selyse's heart to try and ignite the fake Lightbringer if he realises that it's fake and he wants to do the Nissa Nissa moment for real. And then he will have truly lost everything, you know. Is, is this what Stannis's story is? A lot of the Stannis fans are now disillusioned or shocked just at the notion of him even contemplating burning Shireen. But remember that it's George's job to create surprise and he, he loves to do that in shocking and gory ways. If you think Ned's head, the Red Wedding and Oberyn's fate all have a touch of that. 
And I think that Stannis becoming so desperate and choosing his destiny over his daughter would actually be the classic human heart in conflict with itself that George says he loves to explore in different ways. That's a good point, too. Also, he has said that he hasn't even written this scene yet in right. in The Winds of Winter, or whether it's even going to be in The Winds of Winter. So that sort of indicates that maybe it's coming later. Maybe it's not even going to be in the winds of winter. It could be not till the final book, but I, I suspect it's going to be late in the winds of winter. The circumstances could be a lot different. Yeah. It's very different. I think, I think there would be a lot of bigger build up, and we will continue to talk. We've got a lot to say about this. Um, I was just going to give this quote. This is from Melisandre. If a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing but a man who offers the only cow he owns. So that's Mel, and, you know, that's quite ominous in, in light of what we've seen and what we've heard D&D say, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's, that comes from in a scene with um, Melisandre Davos and Stannis. You know, they're, they're talking about Edric Storm at the time. Davos is very concerned about Edric's fate. He's focused on Edric. He's thinking about the legend of Lightbringer and the sacrifice of Nissa Nissa. And he wonders if Edric Storm is going to be playing that role. He tells Stannis, you know, I'm speaking of this boy, your daughter's friend, your brother's son. Remember, Davos is always trying to give Edric a name and a face to Stannis to save him. But so now it looks like the, the cow that Stannis is going to have to sacrifice, his only cow, his greatest treasure, uh, might not have been Edric Storm. That might not be who Mel was referring to all that time ago back in... Those Clash of Kings, I think, right? Yeah, that that Edric scene is really interesting because it shows his mindset. And if you apply the way he thought about it then to how to this decision, then it really it really is interesting, and it kind of fits better than I would have thought. The question that we have sitting up there now from James Vichel is: As a Stannis fan, I would like to know that if the burning of Shireen goes down and it's by Stannis's hand, how does that affect your fandom? For me, it's an irredeemable act, and we'll jump on and we'll jump move on from him. Well, I guess we'll move on from him. I, it certainly dampens my view of him, but again, this is the show Stannis, and show Stannis has been different all along. He's not, you know, he does, he's not funny like book Stannis is, for one thing. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to have to wait. Yes, I think that it will also dampen my, my liking of Stannis in the books, but I'm gonna, I can't decide how much until I see the scene and see all the circumstances and how it actually plays out. So that's difficult to say for sure. But yes, it's, I mean, it's not a likable thing, but it might be very interesting. It might be very compelling. I've seen a lot of people point to the similarity to the story of Troy and the Greek Mycenaean king Agamemnon, uh, who sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia for favorable winds to sail to Troy. Uh, and the gods were not going to let him do anything without that sacrifice, apparently. So that ended up being a problem for him. He was murdered by his wife later for doing that. So it didn't work out so well for him, even though he did succeed at Troy. I don't know if the parallel goes any farther than the similar similarities in the sacrifice to a greedy god, but it's something to think about. Um, let's see here. We have, yeah, there's so much to say about this. It's, it's, it's quite a big topic because we're trying to guess at what happens in the books, and we, are, we know it's going to be different, we just, but we can't possibly guess as to how it will be different. As I said earlier, Book Stannis 
was very stubborn about burning people, even in the midst of a storm, even in the midst of being snowed under and, and being in really dire straits. We have this quote, a sacrifice will prove our faith still burns true, sire, Clayton Suggs had told the king, and Godfrey the giant slayer said, the old gods of the north must have sent this storm upon us. Only R'hllor can end it. We must give him an unbeliever. And Stannis says, half my army is made up of unbelievers. I will have no burnings. Pray harder. No burnings today and none tomorrow. But if the snows continue, how long before the king's resolve begins to weaken? Well, one thing that, and that's what we're thinking about here, how long before his resolve weakens? That's what we're thinking about. And not just how long, but what? What will cause his resolve to weaken this much? As we alluded to before, the White Walkers, you know, if the wall comes down, if the Night's Watch is destroyed, if things are getting really dire in that way, well, I don't know if I'd be down for sacrificing, for Santa sacrificing his daughter. I mean, like, okay, yes, that's that was the correct play. But I would hate it a lot less than, than this. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. And the other thing, though, is will he just go straight to it? Will he just burn Shireen or will he do something else first? He burned the cannibals, for example. He was willing to burn Edric Storm, but that's because Edric Storm has king's blood. Hmm, so what about other possibilities? Who else has king's blood? Well, in the books, there's a couple of possibilities. We have Asha and Theon, for example. So, Yoke Boy, you have some thoughts on, on those two, as well as some other possibilities for what could push Stannis this far. Yeah, uh, it's, it is interesting thinking if, if he'll try something before. I'm not sure, like you say, you've got Asher and Theon. I'm not really sure about those. Um, although, you know, there is there is hints of uh, for Theon's sacrifice, so I, I guess. But, you know, I've never really given it much thought. But we, I think we're all in agreement that he would have to have a, a slow and long descent um, and being on the utter brink of desperation and despair before taking this step. And, you know, the show, it did go very, very quickly in the show. And maybe that's part of what's jarred people. It seemed like, what the hell? You know, a lot of people's favourite characters had just jumped from A to B in no time at all. And... It, it was a bit much. I think in the books it'll be a lot more kind of um, drawn out. Yeah, let, let me jump in just for a second to say this is a perfect segue to one of the questions that's been asked from Dylan Onidi, or Onidi, apologize for the pronunciation there. In regards to the Shireen scene, do you think they should have given it more context? The way they showed it made it feel as if this was a sudden decision that Stannis made. I don't think they did a good job showing the desperation of Stannis's army. No, it was definitely rushed. Like I said, a lot of the show is rushed. They condense things. They just simply don't have the time. I mean, you can criticize them for that, but if, if they gave that more time, they lose time elsewhere. It already comes across as a scene with too many storylines. So they, they simply, you know, didn't have uh, time to develop that. But I will say, you know, the, the effect on the audience is that it's it does come across confusing and it, it is a bit of a kind of character change. It's changing the winds. So it, it does lose something, and that, that's why the books will always be better. Yeah, and the other thing that I think you have to keep in mind by judging the showrunners for, the, for all this is, yeah, I totally agree that a lot of things have felt rushed. This season has been more rushed than anything, which to me is a little bit ironic because they're rushing to outpace the source material. They're not, that's not the only reason they're rushing. But it, it's, it's funny to think that if they slowed down a little, they could cover the stuff better. But there, would, there are certainly other problems they'd run into by slowing down. But 
again, this is the point in the series where things really expand. I know some people out there, less more casual fans, don't like feast and dance as much because they say they don't think as much happens. The plot doesn't move forward as much. Well, I don't agree with that necessarily, but I do think that there's some merit to those comments. But in this, it's not like we get that and nothing else. And instead of more perhaps more plot movement, we get more expansion of the story. The world grows bigger. We get the Ironborn, we get the Dornish, we get more of Essos, we get Volantis, we get all sorts of things. So the world gets bigger, which is, in turn, a huge challenge for the TV show. All these different locations. Think about how, that's one of the hardest things they have to do, is locations. They have to go to these exotic places like Iceland, or Morocco, or, you know, Madagascar. I guess they were there for a while in previous seasons. And that is... That's crazy. I mean, just thinking about that, like they have to find these things that match relatively to to, to a, a fantasy book. <laughs> I mean, that's really hard to pull off. So it's it's something to keep in mind when when we're judging. Okay, um, let's talk some more about Stannis and Shireen. Yeah, I was gonna say just to re to remind people why this isn't gonna happen anytime soon. And, you know, why it's kind of upset people. I think people hear D&D's comments and they think, well, it can't happen. You know, it's, it's actually impossible. Stannis is in no position to do this. Okay, and here's why. At the moment, Stannis is simply nowhere near Shireen. And we have this quote from the Theon uh, Winds sample. He says this to Justin Massey. You will avenge my death and seat my daughter on the Iron Throne, or die in the attempt. So you see Stannis still valuing Shireen as his heir here, and, you know, it's very powerful. Um, there's obviously a long way to go before things kind of go pear-shaped for Stannis, but it's interesting to consider how they could go pear-shaped. And it could start with the Siege of Winterfell not going well. And he simply can't take Winterfell and has to kind of retreat as he did after Blackwater. And he, he's, you know, down on his numbers, down on his money, down on his luck. And, it, you know, we could see the start of a downward spiral there. That's one example of what could happen. Yeah, and I certainly predict, as I've already sort of alluded to, that I think it will build up to sacrificing Shireen. He'll, he'll, he'll maybe burn somebody else first. Maybe he'll try some other means. And one of the things that leads me to believe that is that's what Azor Ahai did. That the story of Azor Ahai with Nissa Nissa, he didn't just straight up start by plunging the sword into his wife's heart. He started by with cold water and then a mountain lion and then Nissa Nissa. So it, it, I think that not that, and Stannis has been told that he's Azor Ahai. So I don't know if he's going to follow that path because he knows that's what Azor Ahai did, but I think it's supposed to be some sort of parallel. And all this time, we've been wondering who Nissa Nissa is. Who's going to play the role of Nissa Nissa? Some people think it could be Ghost if John is it, or it could be one of Danny's dragons, or that we just have it all wrong and it doesn't have to be anybody in particular. It's just an allegory. But Shireen was considered by some people, but I don't think she was, you know, one of the more popular candidates for it. But now. Well, <laughs> it's looking pretty, uh, looking like that might be exactly what, what we're faced with. Now, it's interesting to think about who else might get burned. We talked about the possibility of Asha and Theon, and I, I'm amused by the fact that 
it's one of the few times where having common blood makes you safer. <laughs> Being noble usually is a is a safer thing in Westeros, but well, not going to get burned if you don't have king's blood. Well, unless you eat people. So Jane Poole, does she have king's blood? Well, not really. But if everyone thinks she's Arya, <laughs> then <laughs> well, Stannis already sent her to the wall, also, so she might be out of range. But there's also that wildling, Garrett Kingsblood, who claims descent from the last king beyond the wall, Raymond Redbeard. And maybe Stannis would try burning him. So maybe Shireen will be like the tenth person that's burned. He's like, well, that didn't work. Send me another one. Burn another one. Burn. It. We'll just be so haha, burned out mm -hmm. on that plot line <laughs> that Shireen will be like, ah, what's another one? I don't care if it's a little girl. <laughs> we'll just be, yeah, we'll just be totally uh, desensitized to characters being burned no probably not i'm kidding <laughs> okay so here's another good question from drew hinkus we know that mel sees the future and then uses blood sacrifice to convince people that she uses the blood sacrifice to actually make the future events occur did you read the scene with mel at the fire followed by a tense burning as she knew it and let happen so she could burn shireen well that's an interesting point in general to suggest that melisandre looks at future events and then acts like she needs something to make them happen or to make sure they happen. It's a cynical view of Melisandre and I don't, I wouldn't say it's wrong. I didn't get that impression, but I, I think it's definitely possible. She is certainly manipulative and is willing to say anything because she believes that the ends justify the means. Like Yoke Boy said earlier, she is the most, among the most black and white characters in a series filled with gray characters. Now her motives are a little uncertain and that gives her some grayness, but as far as the way she views the world, she's a very, she sees things very black and white. She says that to Davos. There's a scene where she specifically says, if there's an apple that's half rotten and half good, it's a rotten apple. Whereas I think a lot of people would look at that and go, well, cut away the bad stuff and you've got half a good apple you can eat. And that's what I would do personally, especially if I was hungry. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's different, too. To it's interesting, too, to compare Melisandre to other people, other red priests like Thoros and Makora, who just not only have different attitudes, but have different results with their magic. And I don't know, it just makes my head spin. We're talking about supernatural, and that just, like we said last time around, this is really hard to, to figure out any of that stuff. And George doesn't want us to figure it out. He's made it intentionally vague. So I'd say, yes, it's possible but I don't think so. I, I got the impression that, that Shireen, or that, that Melisandre was genuinely surprised by the sabotage. And we sort of talked about that a bit earlier. I think you guys agreed with that. Okay, so another thing I want to talk about in general is the possibility, as much as, as awkward as it is, as hard it is, as it is to wrap our heads around it, that, that Melisandre is right. That Relore does need appeasing by a real sacrifice that really they would have all frozen to death in the snow if she hadn't done this you guys have you guys thought about that much is that is, is that a line of thinking that that works or is it just no 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 there's no it's not right <laughs> oh, no it's it, it, i think it's what george wants us to think about it's a very deep philosophical thing we're you know th this is a fantasy world where you know, perhaps there is something in in our world. You know, it, it would be crazy to consider that. Okay, you know, fanatics have done nothing but harm, kind of thing. But in this world, in a fantasy world where there is magic and stuff, of course, we're supposed to wonder, aren't we? And uh, you know, perhaps perhaps Mel will start using a magic to kind of 
fight the others at some point and we'll be really torn, you know? Oh, is she a villain? Is she a hero? All these kind of things George wants to mess up with, with our heads. I'm sure he's a philosopher at heart. That's why I, last week, remember, I brought up the possibility of Ramsey being, you know, somehow turning out to be a great fighter against the others. That that, that would be the weirdest, <laughs> the, the biggest, like, ah, what do we do? Like, yay, go, go, oh, Ramsey. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> well, I think it's a lot more. It's a lot more likely with Melisandre because, for one thing, she's you know she's warm, and the the others, uh, it, well, in the books, they seem to uh, use this cold as as a kind of weapon. You know, why was she written as warm? She's obviously going to face off with them, and she, you know, you make the joke about Ramsay, but it's, it really might happen with Mel, where we we just don't know. This could be after she's burnt Shireen, and then she's doing heroics. This is probably exactly what George <laughs> likes <laughs> to mess with so, us. So it's also really interesting, like you said, you're talking about what George likes and what he's planned. Well, looking back early, we, we did some research, of course, as we always do. We look back early, and this is creepy. This is really almost sent like a small shiver up my spine when it started to really dawn on me that George has planned this Shireen sacrifice, apparently, for since the beginning or near the beginning. Look at this quote. One of the it's, it's it's the first thing Shireen ever says in the books. This is during the prologue of A Clash of Kings from Maester Crescent's point of view. I had bad dreams, Shireen told him, about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. The child had been plagued by nightmares as far back as Maester Crescent could recall. Now, attentive book readers know that Shireen is has Targaryen blood, like Stannis does. You know, they have a distant link to the Targaryens through Stannis's grandmother. So some people was, interpreted this scene as her having dragon dreams, which is the type of tar recurring prophetic supernatural dreams that certain Targaryens are born with. Similar to green dreams, in a sense. But this now kind of looks like foreshadowing for, for her getting burned, or at least being sacrificed. It's really like, wow, did he really set us up for this that long ago? Yeah, George likes to make dreams non-literal. I mean, he's actually s said as much. If it wasn't as, if it wasn't clear from the books, he's uh, he's actually said that he he likes to kind of make dreams non-literal and and the prophecies too. So the you know the if you imagine that these dragons are the fire that might be after in the in her future that she's having nightmares about. Yeah. Now. We have this other example of compare these specifics with Davos's argument with Stannis over the justification for burning Edric and consider how it could be applied to the to justification for burning Shireen. Lady, go ahead and take us through that. Okay, so I'm just going to read very brief um, a couple of phrases from this lengthy sort of justification that Stannis gives Davos as part of their discussion about the greater good. He tells Davos, my duty is to the realm. What is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? And of course, Davos replies, everything, because he's the voice of reason and morality. So this is, you know, this discussion about the greater good is framed by this issue of sacrificing Edric Storm versus Stannis' duty to the realm, which we alluded to earlier could, you know, actually what the real issue was probably is foreshadowing the sacrifice of Stannis's own daughter. Yeah, that's it's a it's a still a tough sell, but it, it it there it doesn't mean that the circumstances won't at least make it a little bit different. That it, may, it will at least be enough to change how we react to it, even though we know it's coming. Now, another thing 
that's interesting is that Stannis has no heir now. The only person we know of out there that has Baratheon blood besides Stannis is Gendry. So that brings us to this question from Billy Davis III. Regarding the episode 10 trailer, Gendry's sacrifice seems a lot more effective than Shireen's. This is actually not the question I meant to click on, but we'll answer it anyway. Receding ice and snow, is this confirmation that he's the true-born heir? Well, I don't know if it confirms anything about him being the true-born heir. It could confirm that certain blood magic is stronger than others, or it could just be an indication of Melisandre not understanding things properly, or it could be show inconsistency. The leeches killing off a king might seem more powerful or equally powerful, but that's just one human life being snuffed out, which to me, from a god's perspective, is simpler than changing the weather. So I could see the murder of an individual as being a lot more lower on the magic scale than changing weather. It's it's weird, too, because, yeah, like, it's a good point that maybe there's a difference in the way this magic works, some inconsistency, but it's just, I don't know how to get to the bottom of it. I think it's just confusing, and we need, maybe we need more examples of how it works. More examples of... I don't know that we want more examples of people being burned, but yeah. So let's uh, let's move on a little bit here. It it shows that uh, there's some comments about the writing. Can you imagine, Yokpa? You had a thought on on how, how this could have been introduced differently and how it might have been treated in different light. Like imagine without the, the spoiler and the behind the episode of D and D telling us that this is basically in the books. Yeah, I mean, uh, if it's correct, it shows how off base the fandom is with their predictions. You know, we spend so much time in the fandom, like, predicting stuff. If someone had posted that eventuality on an online forum, they, people would have just laughed at them. You know, that that is how far away... The kind of general consensus is to, you know, if this is what George is going to do, that's how far away the kind of hive mind of the fandom is. Actual, completely different pages. And, you know, you've got to credit credit George because his writing is so good that no one can guess. You know, people are studying this text every day. People talking about it, millions of threads out there and still getting it way off base. What's wrong with us? It's George's writing. He's so smart. He knows about the art of surprise. <laughs> he knows how to play on you know, people, tend to, you know, delude themselves. Something's not going to happen. That's why he can spell out that the Red Wedding would happen. And uh, a lot of readers, you know, still didn't think it was going to happen, even even at the Twins, you know. It, it, he, George has really mastered the art of surprise, and that, that's why we're, we're all so terrible at predicting things. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's talk about the army morale of Stannis' army. What, how are they going to react to this? Are they going to... We talked about the kinslaying thing and how that isn't as big a deal as it could be because these aren't northerners, although some of his men are southerners who care about kinslaying as well. But these are also men that have stayed loyal to Stannis through all kinds of other harsh things, although this is far more harsh and, and far worse. So there is that to consider. Do you guys see anything changing there? Do you think anything his army might... There might be some desertions or some reactions or it might just affect their morale in general. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in spite of the fact that it was rushed and people had valid complaints about this, I think there were a couple of camera shots that did a good job of capturing the desperation that we see in Sanus's army, late Dance with Dragons and in the, the Winds sample chapter. Uh, personally, I wouldn't have been surprised to see or hear about cannibalism. There's just a couple of 
camera shots of very desperate looking men. Yeah. Um, so they're obviously very low morale. I wondered, you know, what is hanging the sentries going to do for the morale? I mean, it's what you would expect of Stannis after this attack by Ramsay, but now morale even lower. Now we're burning little girls. What does that do for your morale? Um, if the sacrifice works, does that make everything okay? Are they, these men are suddenly happy? Um, or do they now have these seeds of doubt sown? Is there something sort of ominous in that? Yeah, you might see a little of both. You might see some people converting to the red god. They see, wow, this worked. Oh my goodness. And they'll, uh, they'll like, they all want to burn their daughters now. <laughs> so here's another question. Speaking of that, if it's a related question from Kiron O'Hagan. Does Stannis have the capability to attack Winterfell? They may still have some supplies, and they could build new siege engines, but can they do it? Would a quick assault with their superior numbers work? What would this mean for the Battle of Ice? Well, it's hard to say what this means for the Battle of Ice, because everything is just so different. There isn't even going to be a Battle of Ice, apparently. There may be a battle at Winterfell, but there's no, there isn't going to be some version of the Battle on the Lake right. in the books. That doesn't seem like anything like that's going to happen. So we can't really comment on that. But... You know what? I think that realistically, Stannis doesn't have the capability to attack Winterfell, and either, and either that's the showrunners just playing loose with that and saying, "Oh, they can," you know, we'll just gloss over that, or he's going to fail, and this will be part of why that he doesn't have the supplies for the siege and all that. So it could be a big problem for him. But I don't know how that's going to work. But I do think that is a problem. This is related. A similar question was asked by Minge Forever: How does one siege? With no supplies. Well, same answer. I think they're just going to either have some supplies appear. Maybe they'll find some supplies. The weather could become so warm after the sacrifice that they're able to fish and hunt again, which would really go a long way to convincing people both in the army and Stannis himself that this Relore business is for real. But I think perhaps more interesting than what's going to happen potentially with the siege and how Stannis' army is going to react is how Davos will react, and to a lesser extent, Solis. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, Davos has been not only Stannis's voice of reason and morality in the show and the books, which is a contrast to Melisandre, obviously, uh, but he's been portrayed as very close to Shireen, that tender kiss on her forehead that he gave before, you know, before he left the scene. I really can't see him accepting this. You know, after all the links he went to in order to save Gendry on the show, Edric Storm in the books, I do not see him accepting this in any way, shape, or form. So this, I predict, a major break between Davos and Stannis. This will be the one thing that I think he just can't accept. Yeah, I think that so this is something that, that Yokeboy alluded to earlier. Really, the whole throughout the whole series, and I didn't, this didn't dawn on me until recently, until really just the last, say, 48 hours, the Davos is the good angel and Melisandre is like the bad angel, like that old trope from old TV shows where the, the one, the two pop up on your shoulder and they one tells you to do the bad thing and the other one tells you to do the good thing. And it's usually kind of comical. The, the person will like bl brush off the good angel and, and do the, you know, but it's usually something like something humorous, like having more dessert or peeking at the <laughs> girls in the shower or something yeah. like that. <laughs> it's not usually, you know, burning a daughter, but we see they kind of allude to this concept by having Stannis send Davos away. Like, he needs to send away the good voice. He's not going to be able to get this done if, if the good angel is still sitting on his shoulder. 
what do you think, Yoke Boy, about this this interplay between Davos and Stannis? I think that uh, the dynamics with Davos, especially if this happens in the books, maybe because I'm more invested, but it's going to be fascinating. And the whole basis of Davos's character is loyalty, really. Um, but he's also not someone just to walk blind. He repeatedly challenges Stannis and, you know, stands up for what he thinks is right and tries to, like you say, it's the shoulder angels of kind of Christian iconography. And there's just no way he's going to worship Stannis as he, he kind of has done, really. He's kind of looks to him almost in a god godly sense because he he raised him up, and and he loves his sense of justice. And this is there's no way this is going to seem no just way. To Davos. Davos Davos has got too many principles. If you think about it, it, it again, it makes sense that there was a moment where Davos lost his loyalty to Stannis in the story because it's just such a strong thing and it's never going to be there forever. So you know. It, that would be a good example of the human heart being in conflict with exactly itself. him own... having to break away. Yeah. So this could be it. This could could be like Lady Gwyn says. I don't see him just being cool with this in any way, shape, or form. I, I don't. I don't know what will happen to him. Could he take the black or go and find Rickon? Who knows? You know what? What do you uh, watching us think? This can start thinking. Um, what, what could happen to Davos in the long term now? Yeah, it's really uh, it's a really tough question. Uh, I really don't know. I, I think that his his decision because so many people love Davos, especially us book readers, because we see into his thoughts and we know what a great guy he is and how loyal and honest he is. That makes us all comfortable with him and comfortable with liking him. And it, it would hard, it would, you know, it would, people ask us how we change our view of Stannis for this. Well, if Davos continues to follow Stannis even after this, I would actually. Might like Davos a little bit less too for for being a little too rigid with that. Like, all right, man, time to maybe <laughs> time to maybe back off on the opinion you had of Stannis. He's not really living up to that being you know, that justice thing, is he? Well, the great thing about Davos's loyalty is he 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 um, he's not a sycophant, is he? Right. That's the great thing about his brand of loyalty is that. You, you know, like I said, he doesn't he doesn't kind of back down. And this is why Stannis actually likes him. This is why they get along. Because And he'd have to be a heck of a sycophant to, to follow Stannis after this. You know, he would have to have no kind of willpower or mind of his own. He, he would just be, no way, Davos is too cool, isn't he? <laughs> Definitely. Okay, let's do one more question before we move on. We will come back and answer some more Stannis and Shireen questions bit later as well as we'll, we'll handle a few of them during the trailer discussion because a few of them apply better to that section now the question here is from ralph markham who wants to know could the grayscale go airborne with burning of shireen i've honestly never considered that possibility it's an interesting idea i don't think so but man what a kick would that be to just have a bunch of stannis's army just all of a sudden show up with grayscale just Yikes. where did that come from <laughs> I should think, uh, my personal opinion is, it's a great answer, it's the cure to grayscale, is being burnt. <laughs> I think fire might be the, the solution to grayscale, I don't think it was Yeah, that it. might be the other thing. That's a good point. Okay, 
If you are a user of Amazon, I highly recommend Amazon Prime. I've been using it myself for about 10 years. It's a one-time yearly fee and you get access to two-day free delivery on all items. You get access to Amazon Instant Video, which is great. I've rewatched Deadwood on that recently and I, I rewatched Vikings on that as well. They got actually got a lot of premium programs. Not Game of Thrones, unfortunately, but we all I'm sure we all have our own ways of watching that already. So you can sign up for that through historyofwesteros.com. Go to History of Westeros and click on any of the Amazon links on the right. And anything you do through those links will help out the show. All right, let's move on. Let's go to Dorne. A lot of, a lot of stuff happening at Dorne. Maybe a little bit more, some surprises perhaps, and some unexpected results. And a few interesting parallels to the books. A few of them are quite subtle. I li really like the opening shot, the way they showed the upshot of Jamie and Hota's glaive with the really high ceiling. That was really cool. And we have a good mystery sort of semi-unraveled and talked about. Uh, the whole thing with the necklace, that was something that we a bunch of us were talking about throughout the season as a, as a possibility for a conspiracy theory. In other words, the possibility that someone else sent the necklace or that... Uh, it, you know, like maybe it was sent by Littlefinger or something like that. It could have been an inside job or that Cersei did it herself. Well, did you guys, how did you guys interpret that? Did it seem, did it, it was a little vague. It seemed like Ilaria did it, but they did, definitely didn't come out and say so. What did, what did you guys think? Uh, I think, you know, I just interpreted it pretty straightforward that, you know, Doran immediately looked at Ilaria. She looked a little um, guilty. She had a guilty look on her face. But that said, you know, nothing was confirmed. Nobody actually said anything. All, all we heard was uh, Marcella saying the necklace was stolen from her chamber. So that may be still an open question. So I think the, the, one of the great parallels here, Lady Gwen, tell us this, the, uh, the, when Ilaria poured out her wine, that's actually a parallel to the books. Yeah, that's pretty much right from The Watcher, which is the Area Hota chapter. We have the quote here is when uh, Balon Swan was being feasted by Doran and his court. Prince left it to Ricasso, his blind seneschal, to rise and propose the toast. Lords and ladies, let us all now drink to Tommen, the first of his name, King of the Endels, and Roynar, the first man, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. And then a number of guests refused the toast one way or another. They covered their glass. They just didn't participate. But it says, Tyene declined Ricasso's toast with a murmur, and Lady Nim with a flick of a hand. Obara let them fill her cup to the brim then upended it to spill the red wine on the floor, which is exactly what Ilaria did in that scene, which I found interesting because we've talked about how Ilaria has absorbed that sort of angry part of Obara's character. So Ilaria's turnaround, her, basically she bowed, kind of became bowed, bent, broken, sort of. Uh, so here's a question comes from our hand to the king, Cash Craig. Will Ilaria really obey Doran, or is it, or is she plotting further treason? Would she give up her life in order to finally get revenge? Now that's what got me thinking that about her turnaround being really quick. It could have be just they, the show does that a lot. The show has people's characters turn around really quickly, so it could just be that. But it could be masking the truth, which is that she's up to something. During the trailer discussion, we'll have a few more ideas on this, but for now. Yes, I do think something could be up with that. I think that Ilaria might have something, might be a deeper game going on. And there, we'll, we'll be talking through more evidence of the possibility that it might just be Ilaria, that Doran might be in on it. 
Uh, we know Doran's got his plans in the books, and none of those plans have really come out in the show yet, for the most part, other than trying to avoid war, which is one of an important part of Doran's character that's been preserved. So, so her absolving Jamie was interesting, and her absolving, but not absolving Cersei, <laughs> potentially, is very interesting. So, the idea of Doran sending Tristane to King's Landing, that by itself is pretty interesting. That leads us to another question from our good friend Jeff Hartlane, a.k.a. Brendan B. Fish from the Wars of Wars and Politics of a Song of Ice and Fire blog. And he asks, was Doran playing it straight with Jamie, or will Doran Martell reveal the, his vengeance, justice, fire, and blood line like he does in A Feast for Crows? Also, was listening to Game of Thrones, and they speculated that it was Doran who sent the necklace to Cersei. Thoughts on that? Well, we'll start with that latter question since we've already talked about that. I don't think so. Doran, he could have been acting and making it just for Jamie's benefit and staring at Ilaria like, you did that. Uh, so I, I definitely it's possible, but I, I don't think so. But as for the other part of the question, this is where it gets interesting. What do you, what do you think, Lady Gwen? Do you think that something along these lines is happening? Do you think Doran has a hidden plan or are they, or is it a simple plan, a simple hidden plan or no plan at all? I think there's a plan, um, you know, whether the plan is to... You know, we talked about speculating that maybe there's they have designs on poisoning Tommen. Yeah. So that to seat Marcella on the Iron Throne and make Tristane her king consort. This would make a lot of sense to me because in the in the sense that, you know, we don't we're not gonna have the hoped for Danny Quentin alliance from the books that's out the window in the books and the show. The the suspected Arion Aegon alliance is probably out the book out of out the window here. So this could be just a shortcut by the show to, sh to show this eventual power grab in King's Landing by Dorne. It would fit really well with how the show simplifies things. Yes. The, Stannis has been simplified to caring mostly about the Iron Throne. Most of the characters care about the Iron Throne and not about much else. Uh, as far as, you know, in terms of the big power players, that is. Obviously, characters like Brienne care about other things. But... They could be simplifying a similar way. Maybe Doran, is, he has designs on getting power over the kingdom, just like pretty much everybody else. He doesn't have to be worried about revenge, or the two things can be combined. He can be getting revenge along the way. If he takes out Marcella and Tommen, or rules through Marcella and kills Tommen, and sees Cersei cast down, well, he's going for a simplified take-the-throne kind of plot, which fits in with the general show simplification. Or, or, and it accomplishes his revenge. They could be doing both things at once, which I think is, that's uh, a pretty cool idea. And when I say simplification in the show, I don't mean that it's simple. I just mean that it's simpler than the books, which I think we can all agree with for the, the vast majority of the time, the books are more complicated than the show. So I like that a lot. Now, another question from Cash Craig, very relevant, was something we were gonna answer, even if it hadn't been asked. In the show, Tristane is Doran's only child, very important. Is it foolish for him to be sent to King's Landing, where Martells tend to die a lot? Yeah, something we really we talked about a bit in the show-only review as well. Like, yeah, like, not only do Martells have a poor track record of going to King's Landing, but King's Landing is in chaos kind of right now. I mean, it's not like there's just looting in the streets, but the, the High Sparrow's <laughs> in charge up there, and Cersei, both the queens are in prison, and Tommen is helpless. It's... Yeah, I don't. It's it's not the best place to send your only your only heir. But Tristane is older than he is in the books. He's more capable, so it may be that kind of situation where Doran trusts him because he's, you know, he's more of a man. He's more of he's more an adult. 
I think, okay, he's more of an adult, but I think it's a really bad plan because I don't think he can kind of stand up for himself. I don't think he's got the smarts to, you know, go in into the, you know, the rat's nest, a completely different environment where where he's always lived and and um, farewell. I think that it's a, it's, it's a bad plan. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll, we'll kind of have to see how it goes. In the trailer discussion, we'll have a bit more on Dorn as well. Let's see if we have any other good questions here from here. Here's a, here's a question that's not directly related, but it's it's funny because we're talking about the Iron Throne again from Cash Craig. Will we see the Iron Throne again this episode or next episode, or will it remain completely absent for the whole season? You know, I hadn't realized that. The throne has not been seen all season long. Uh, Tommen doesn't like to sit on it, I guess, because uh, he's... I don't know why Tommen doesn't like to sit on it. But they, it's interesting they haven't shown him sitting on it at all, and I didn't notice that. So... I guess maybe we will see that, maybe we, or maybe we won't. Uh, I guess they kind of want to show it at least once, but it's not in the trailers. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it won't. Maybe it won't. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, but um, it seems like they would want to show it at least once. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so uh, iconic. Just, <laughs> exactly. I, I've been trying to think of what the scene could be where they, you know, kind of knowing what I expect the King's Landing scenes to be, and I don't, I can't imagine how they would go about it unless there's some Tommen scene that he's suddenly sitting on the throne. Right on. Okay. Um, I don't think we have a whole lot else on Dorne. Like I said, we will be, there's actually a few juicy things that we have to talk about in the trailer discussion, which might surprise some people because it might seem like this plot line is done for the season, but we have some reasons to believe it's not. So we'll talk about that a bit later. One last thing though, Braun all season long, we, he was at the top of our list, most likely to die. Glad to be wrong about that. Although, there's still one episode left. And like I said, there's reasons to believe that there will be some more action in this plot line last season. So maybe Braun isn't out of the, I was about to say out of the woods yet, out of the desert yet. Right. But it looks better for him. He hopefully just gets away with just, you know, an elbow to the face and a bowl of soup. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I want to say before we move on is... In general, it's difficult for us as book readers. And I don't mean that we have a hard time. I mean that it's hard for us to separate the show from the books. That's, uh, that's kind of obvious. We all know that. But it's interesting to consider that we're constantly judging the show based on the books. What other TV show has is faced with that? Almost none. Almost, I mean, and to this degree, hardly anything. We usually judge shows based on other TV shows. We compare shows to other shows. We compare movies to other movies. Sometimes we compare movies to TV shows. But generally, those mediums are compared to each other and not to books. And, and it's, it really reveals the, the trouble in comparing the two because people who come from an overly book perspective often don't even talk about the fact that we get these beautiful scenes, these great actors and all things like that, the detailed sets and designs. So just something to keep in mind with a grain of salt when you're, when you're judging, you know, be, judge fairly. Uh, we, we're all, we're, we like to, that's something we like to do around here is to, I think that we pay a lot of attention to trying to be fair. We, we all say negative things about the show, but we don't, I don't think we, for the most part, we don't, we don't rant. <laughs> and ranting is fine, mm -hmm. but it serves its own purpose. But that's just not our, that's not really our thing here, personally. All right, so let's go on to Bravos. We have kind of a, a quicker scene, but uh, a lot of potential and a lot of foreshadowing for what we can expect from the next episode, which I think is going to be really interesting. And it's time for the question with the most upvotes. 
of all, a very, very important question from Cold Bus. Here it is. Oysters, clams, or cockles? Well, you would think that this is an easy question and it wouldn't require any research, but as much as we are addicted to researching things over here at History Westerners, I had to do some research even for this question, which was meant as a joke, because I don't know what the hell a cockle is. Well, now I do, because I looked it up. It's basically a smaller clam. It's so... Uh, with a different flavor to it that I, you know, that Wikipedia couldn't exclaim, ex ex describe to me. <laughs> They're very popular here in England. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, cockles, and you have them in a kind of uh, salted brine and they keep, but yeah. Cool. Uh, I, I probably would, would take the oysters, yeah. Aphrodisiac. I'll go with oysters also. I, I, last night I said cockles, but I've already changed my mind. <laughs> oysters, I think cockles has yeah. the coolest name. <laughs> but... But oysters, I think, probably taste the best. Yes. Yeah, sans poison oysters. vinegar, sans especially. Vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have Mace uh, singing, going for the award for best Game of Thrones singer, competing with Cooper, a.k.a. Braun, and, of course, with Thoros from prior seasons. Who else has sung? Has any other characters done some singing? I know Mance does singing in the books, but not Show Mance, I don't think, does any singing. Yeah, not really in the show so no the sing-off will be between those three <laughs> <laughs> the voice of westeros <laughs> right <laughs> so we have some Marin trant action i don't i don't know if this was some of this didn't seem necessary to me because we have plenty of reasons to hate Marin. some of this seemed like just a build up to hating Marin, which we didn't need to do we already hated him pretty much but there's more to it. The scene isn't just about making us hate Marin more. Lady Gwen, tell us what else is happening here. Yeah, you know, Marin the pedophile, it was disgusting. But as I watched it, I was nodding my head because it's a clear nod to Wrath the Sweetling in the Mercy chapter, um, who goes off with young Mercy, who's 11, 12 tops uh, in this chapter, in spite of his companion's obvious disgust i think the the other guardsman who's with him says you're disgusting and you can tell from mercy's point of view that this harks back to tales that aria had heard when she was amongst gregor's men raf talking about um raping young girls uh, girls not young women actual children so i think it's definitely a nod you know and they put their own spin on it but uh it's definitely a nod to raf the sweetling who we assume Marin is standing in for since Raph in the show is already dead. So this is, we hear the line, Marin says, you'll have another one for me tomorrow. So that, that seemed pretty likely that Ari is going to be the, the other one who will dress up as a young prostitute and hopefully will kill him before the scene goes too far in that direction. We don't want him, I, I don't want to see Marin lay one hand on, on Arya. <laughs> so let's just uh, hope that's how it goes. I'm ready for that, that bit of revenge. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope it plays out just like it does in the Mercy chapter. I hope um, gives us a real, real clear nod to that. I'm wondering if we'll see Needle. Yeah, me too. Do you guys think that that she's going to that rather that Jaken believed her when she said that the thin man wasn't hungry, or did he b think she was lying but accept it for whatever reason? It could go either way, couldn't it? I 
I wasn't sure. You, you just can't tell. The faceless men, even in the books, they seem to know more than they let on. You always get get that impression. So I tend to side with that, but I think it was purposefully ambiguous. What about the insurance salesman slash gambler? What do we think about him? Yuck boy, you have some thoughts on, is that still going to happen or is she just going to leave that off in, instead of while pursuing Marin or maybe she can pull off both? Okay, I think it was last week I predicted that Aya is going to poison the vinegar that, that he has on his oysters because when she serves serves him the oysters, her back was turned to him. So it's the ideal opportunity. And there was this close-up shot of the vinegar. I still, I'm still behind that idea. I think she will kind of serve the faceless man and, and do her duty, but then go off, as you say, to kind of offer herself. She knows that they're looking for a young girl for Merrin that night. And I think she'll go and offer herself and this puts us in in the mercy situation um it's a step into sexualized aya which i remember when i was reading mercy it was a, a bit uncomfortable but when all said and done is a very satisfying sequence uh, uh, like lady gwyn says i hope it plays out like for like yeah i agree Here's a question from Sweetie FT. Assuming she kills Marin Trant next episode, how long do you see Arya staying in Bravos for? Do you think the show will try to adapt more of her Faceless Man's arc or find her a quicker way out? I like that question a lot, but the problem with it is, is Arya's arc is the hardest to, to see the future of, I think, in general. I think we kind of have a general idea of where Danny is going. Of course, there's plenty of mysteries with all these plot lines, but where Danny is going, where where John is kind of going, although it's hard to see what exactly what role he'll play as a reanimated uh, whatever. But Arya's is really, she's, we know what she's becoming, but, but what she's going to do with it in the future, I really do not know. There's just a lot of possibilities. I've seen theories ranging as wide from a show perspective as her, her taking over the alchemist's place in Old Town to her killing Cersei to her being sent to kill Walder Frey or her killing Walder Frey because he's still on her short list. There's just, I, I really don't know how to answer that question by other than by throwing out a bunch of possibilities. Do you guys have some thoughts on that or do you kind of feel the same way? I think it's, it's difficult to tell because of where it is in the books. I mean, even the possibilities, you don't know when in time it's going to happen. I think we can all agree that she's going to return to Westeros in the books and I think me, me and Gwyn think, think she'll be tied to the North. Yeah, okay. Do you guys have thoughts on whether her whether Needle is going to come out? Is she going to use the sword for Marin Tran, or is that going to come later? Yeah, I would really like to see it. Uh, we're pretty sure that's how she killed Raph, the sweetling. So yes. it would <laughs> make sense for them to end this season with her retrieving that sword that we saw her hide at the beginning. It would be... Obviously a little rushed, like a lot of the plot lines are, like we've been talking about, but it would be appearing in the right place and it would really feel right. Right on. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, I think it's really important that uh, Arya kills Merrin with Needle. I think it's really important to her kind of story and who she is. Needle represents her stark identity. This is well established. It's about holding on to who she really is in the midst of changing her identity every five seconds. Mm -hmm. And her kill list 
and thirst for revenge is a huge part of her identity, what she's been through and who she is. So it's inseparable from Arya Stark. I want her to kill Merin as Arya Stark. And the only way she's going to do that really with all the symbolism is with, with Needle. <laughs> Uh, here's a, a question, more of a comment, really, from Mr. Step 76 And a lot of people seem to agree with this based on the upvotes. I think for Arya's story, she will kill Maren Trant and get caught by the kindly man for doing it. That will be why she is given the blinding warm milk, and Arya blind is her punishment will be the last thing we see of her this season. I can see it going that way. I'm not sure that they'll do the blind. They may skip over that. Mm. But if they don't, absolutely, that fits really well. Mm. I could see that something exactly like that happening. Mm. It would be a brilliant cliffhanger for the for the TV show where you have to wait a whole a whole season to see if she's blind. I remember when I read it in the books, I really wanted to read ahead because I was so desperate to know, you know, if she was going to be permanently blind. So having to wait a full year would be a brilliant cliffhanger. I think I, I'm not sure they'll do it. <laughs> I can't recall. Does she? Does her blindness end in Feast for Crows, or does it stay? Or is it in Dance of Dragons where she becomes gets her sight back? I think it's in dance, which would mean we did end up waiting five years to find out. <laughs> I think it's in dance. So I think those, yeah, people did have to wait. We did wait forever to learn. <laughs> okay, let us move on to Marine. The action-packed scene at the end of the episode. I thought the stadium shot from above was really glorious. It was really neat looking. I had some problems with the scene, but I actually like it more in now a few days later than I did at first I still have some critiques but Yoke Boy why don't you give us your initial thoughts okay I just want to say the first time I enjoyed it less I, I the second time I saw it um I did actually enjoy it more so it might be worth revisiting for some people in terms of the looks I thought it was you know it's quite amazing really if you step back it did have its flaws that is really obvious but remember this is this is television and we've really been spoiled by HBO and Game of Thrones, especially with the last episode at Hard Home. This was an absolutely huge and very, very ambitious scene. And in the most part, it looked awesome. Uh, so I'm willing to cut them some slack for the patchy parts. All things considered, it was real blockbusting TV. And I'm just talking about how it looked. Yeah, it's it's that's definitely a, a good thing to point to, too, as well. It's just one of those things that even though we are all, I think the majority of us prefer the books, there's just nothing, the books could never describe something to the level of, of this kind of spectacle. Uh, and that's great, a great thing about the medium. It's one of the things I think we're all, we all get excited about, even if we have problems with the show, we all get excited for these spectacles. The show has a big budget. And even though sometimes we wish it had a bigger budget or they'd spend their money differently, that's just us being critical. We, we, the, the, the scenes are, some of them are just amazing. This is a good example of that. Even though I had some trouble with the CGI of the actual dragon, I also thought it was really cool. It was back and forth. Some of the scenes were awesome. Some of them were a little too fake looking. But again, that's just me being critical. I, I really, I liked it overall. Mm. First, that first little fight was kind of a Shades of Mountain versus Viper the big guy versus the small guy kind of ended the same way too. <laughs> it looked like the little guy was going to win. And then all of a sudden he sticks his neck out and gets his head cut off. It looked like the last second they subbed the actor for a, a, just a mannequin <laughs> because he just was completely, he was like darting all over the place. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he just stopped yeah. and stuck his neck out, <laughs> got his head chopped off. 
so much for speed. Yeah. But I really liked the commentary, Dario's commentary during it, because he gets to show off his, his it's, it's kind of him showing off his talk. We get a little color commentary, which is, you know, something that people who watch sports are used to in a sense. But it's also showcasing his jealousy, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the books... Danny sent Dario away to avoid this very thing happening. She knew he would never keep his mouth shut around his star. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I guess that's not a problem anymore, though, huh? Not in the yeah. show. Dario <laughs> is Dario doesn't probably won't be a hostage in the books because there's no big army besieging them, uh, and now his star is dead. That was the real that come to me like that was that was a real big surprise. What did you, Yoke Boy? You you had a, a, a something that you thought was missing from this as well. Yeah, I I would have liked to see Danny getting married. I just thought it was important to her story that we see her kind of giving part of herself up like that, making that commitment. Even if the marriage was going to be terribly short, it's it to me it seemed a shame that they, they could have done it. It in the books, it's they kind of disappear together and come back hours later. It did, there was no need for an extravagant scene. I thought they could have fit in a marriage scene before the before the fighting or on a previous episode yeah and the thing about his dar as well is just that was the the most surprising part i think us book readers all maybe may have enjoyed the scene we may have enjoyed the spectacle but we weren't surprised i don't think by much of anything except for his dar's death which was particularly surprising because they gave us that little nod towards him being the harpy with that, oh, I wanted to make sure everything was prepared. You know, like he arrives late. I think all of us book, like a lot of us book readers sat up at that and was like, oh, that's important. And then five minutes later, less than five minutes later, we're like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> it, was so, so, it was so telegraphed that some, one of the major questions we answered in the show only review was, did his dar fake his death? That's how people were so, you know, it was it's, it's so sold on the idea of him being the harpy that it was hard to accept his death. And I was I was right there. I was like, that's a reasonable question there. Maybe he did. But looking at it again now, he was stabbed many times. <laughs> that dude's dead. It was a pretty good faking when he has his heart stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If it's a fake, it was really well executed fake. So it, He's committed. Yeah. So um, as far as the actual pit scene before Drogon arrives, we have a couple of things. We have Tyrion speaking basically what Danny is thinking, which is he kind of reads her perfectly, and he has that moment where he says that you can stop this when Jorah's about to die. He reads, he realizes that she doesn't want Jorah to die, and then there's the debate with his dar about are there you know the necessary conditions for greatness? I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that conversation, or is that just? Um, kind of a allegory that kind of speaks for itself yeah i, I think it does I, d- I did like his uh little comment at the end to his star my father would have liked you <laughs> Classic. <guy. laughs> i like the i like the parallel to Tyrion seeing people mm-hmm. fighting for danny and understand really knowing how disgusting it is because he's obviously had two different duels mm-hmm. fought for his life in the series, both of which right, were portrayed on the show so as well. He's like, so like, oh, not this again. <laughs> right. Yeah. And also Danny drops some hints about destroying Marine, which I'm sure some book readers would love to see that happen. Cause then it would mean she could get the hell out of there and yeah. go to West Coast. But, <laughs> but there's some clues that will, that we're going to come up with a little later in this section that show why Danny isn't ready to go to Westeros just yet. 
Now, the stuff with Jorah, again, we see some really good facial acting from him. He's really doing a lot of that this season. Amelia, I don't know. She was back and forth. I, 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 I'm sometimes critical of her. I don't think her acting was great in the scene, but I don't think it was bad either. I thought she was very static and... It just wasn't believable. She made the kind of the whole mounting of Drogon. She 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 didn't look in the moment. She looked like a woman who was pretending to look at an invisible dragon. I thought she was just <laughs> something about it. She was too still. There wasn't enough kind of expression or surprise in her face. Really, I thought. Here's the here's a question from Robin De Hoyos that had a lot of upvotes. Was anyone else not impressed with the Drogon scene? Daenerys basically abandoned everyone by leaving. Also, there was no sense of threat to Daenerys, whereas in the books, Drogon tries to roast her. All we get is a very cutesy dragon and no sense of drama. I definitely agree with that, and I think that it's true that there didn't seem to be the danger, which is odd because of the spears being thrown. It seems like they could have easily just hurled a few at Danny. And it's interesting that she was in mortal peril because of the Sons of the Harpy here, but in the books, she's in peril more from Drogon than anything. There was no there was no conflict in terms of people trying to kill Daenerys in that scene. So, oh well, until she got on the dragon, then there were bolts and spears coming at her, coming her way, which led to the rumor led to the rumors of her death. But that's a whole other a whole other thing. So yeah, I agree. Uh, some of it was I, I like part of it. I like uh, didn't like part of it. Some of the CGI was really good. Some of it wasn't. I don't. I definitely don't think Amelia made it better. Um, so that's, that's a little too bad. Um, but going back to Jorah, here's a, here's a comment from Sir Newt from our History of Westeros forums. This was asked, this was posted there. Uh, it was a neat parallel that I didn't notice. This is one of the things that helped me enjoy the scene more. Jorah's badassery in this and prior pit scenes is reminiscent of his victory in the tournament at Lannisport, where he won over his second wife, Lannis Hightower. And his winning that tournament was a surprise to everyone including himself. And it seems like this is a bit of a parallel to that. He's fighting like a man possessed and with more skill than some of us may have thought he was capable of because the circumstances are sim similar. He's fighting for a woman he loves. This is kind of what gets him going. This is Jorah. This is what gets Jorah to, to, be a hun to give 110%. It's this kind of situation. Uh, so that's pretty cool. That's a very good observation there. Yeah, that's part of Jorah's character, isn't it? His kind of Achilles heel is falling for women. And, you know, him doing battle in the story, he'll, he'll do anything for, for the women too. So, you know, he's kind of harnessing this kind of obsessive nature with women and using it in battle. It, it was well noticed by whoever that was in your forum. Yeah, Sir Newt. Good job. Or Sir Canute. <laughs> And yeah, like I said, at first I was annoyed by some of the fighting pit action, but, but later on several things came, became more clear to me. And one of the things was the way, the interplay between the Miranese champion, who was the spear fighter that Jorah fought last, and some of the other dynamics. Well, at first I was actually a little annoyed that the Miranese guy stabbed the Bravosi guy in the back just to, let, just to save Jorah so they could fight. I thought that was contrived. But then I thought about it more and some people pointed some things out to me and it made it make perfect sense. And now I went from kind of being annoyed by it to liking it a lot. And here's what it is. The Miranese might have contempt for the Bravosi because the Bravosi are all descended from ex-slaves. And we know how the Miranese are big on slavery and, and hierarchy of society. And they would look down on that. They would also look down on the fact that the Bravosi are against slavery. Also, 
by stabbing him in the back, it doesn't only sh show contempt for the Bravosi, but it makes sure that Jorah is alive, which is actually important because it sets up a Marine versus Westeros battle. And I think the Miranese champion wanted to set Jorah down and kill him in front of the Miranese crowd, all of whom are aware that Daenerys is Westerosi. And having him beat a Westerosi champion would be a real crowd pleaser, as well as a bit of a smack in the face to Daenerys. So I think that was what was going on. So I think that's a really cool, subtle dynamic going on there. Whether or not the showrunners intended that or not, it worked out nicely. I think they probably did, and I just didn't notice at first, but good job. Um, okay, so the sons of the harpy, when they appear, did, what did you guys think about that? It seemed kind of, it was, they played that creepy music, and I don't know, it was, it was something... <laughs> Something seemed off about it, but it's another one of the things that have thought about it a little more. It makes a little more sense, but but what do you think, Yoke Boy? I don't think it makes that much sense. <laughs> it turns out that half of Marine are sons of the Harpies. There was just too many of them. It, 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 was, it was like half the audience, wasn't it? Um, they just haven't really given any background about Sons of the Harpy really... We still, it's in the show, it's just so unclear who or what the Sons of the Harpy are actually all about. And they're just not, to me, they're not believable as a faction. They're kind of like pantomime villains that come out of the, come out of the wardrobe now and again. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what's their agenda? In the TV show, no one could say because they were killing scores of Miranese right. in the stadium it, it just right they hate the unsullied that's fine what well, they, they killing so many of the noble classes it, it, it to me it doesn't make unless I'm missing something yeah, it, this faction does not make sense one thing that like I said I agree with what you said one thing that made it make a little more sense to me is it could be since we don't have a battle of fire happening obviously nothing seems to be pointing towards that we, we did notice, and some, some attentive watchers also noticed, that some of those Sons of the Harpy were wearing slave collars, which could mean it's like a mini, someone's miniature slave army that they sent in to attack. And some, that's something we see a lot of in the Dance with Dragons, as well as in some of the T-Wow spoiler chapters. These little individual slave master armies, these little, like, yeah. with the, the guys on stilts and the... the the pigeons and all this other not well i guess it might be the same ones but these silly slave armies so it could be a, a very subtle nod to that this is some guy's slave army that he sent in to do all this to, to wreak all this havoc but i don't know that's the best i could come up with <laughs> what about um so speaking of the battle of fire here's another good question from sweetie ft this one's got a lot of upvotes we have with no war outside Marine. What do you think Tyrion, Jorah, and Dario will be doing while Danny's gone? <laughs> also, do you think she's heading towards the Dothraki Sea, as in the books, or somewhere else? Well, t the second part of the question, we're going to answer in the trailer discussion. But for now, with no war outside Marine, what what will Tyrion, Jorah, and Dario do? Would you yeah. guys have any thoughts Let's on play that? Play Savas. I think they're playing Savas. <laughs> <laughs> getting drunk and moping on the street corners you know lo looking at their feet oh honestly i have no idea what their agenda is yeah i really don't know they may well i assume what they'll do is they'll continue to campaign against the sons of the harpy that seems to be the major threat it's a threat from within rather than a threat from without uh so it's a it's a different dynamic but it's somewhat similar in that they have a threat to deal with and i think that's what they'll be doing i think Tyrion will be instrumental in rooting them out and that will, by the time Danny comes back, Tyrion will have done some of the jobs of Barristan and the Shave Pate 
and some others. So that I think that's how it's going to go. And I do think Tyrion will be the one to take charge. Dario will do his thing. He'll he'll be. I think Tyrion will will make him will show his value to Dario, and Dario will be comfortable with Tyrion being a co-leader, if not de facto leader. Which is a little odd to think about, considering how new he is on the scene. But he certainly has the yeah. skills. And uh, Jorah will be spreading grayscale, surely. <laughs> and now, isn't that that's a good question? By the way, I think I'm sure there's a question in here somewhere about the grayscale situation with Danny. But I, there's so many questions now, I, I can't find one quickly. So, assuming several of you asked this question, what is the deal with that? Danny seems to have re-accepted Jorah in that moment. There was a bit too many of those, by the way, of a touching moment. Between two characters where they lock eyes, it's not just those two, but but with Danny and Missande and Danny and the dragon, where somehow all the violence seems to stop during those moments. <laughs> but that's that's just TV for you. So, uh, the grayscale plot. Yeah, did Danny get grayscale from Jorah touching her? I don't know. I probably not. It was his off arm. Nah. That doesn't seem very likely. I don't think Danny's going to get grayscale. No. But maybe she's the stone dragon that needs there to be we woken. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Get your tinfoil on, folks. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, get your tinfoil on. That's very tinfoily. So here's another good question from Man Jeff, Jeff Hartline again. Was Daenerys less ambiguous here in season five instead of the conflicted, ambiguous figure of A Dance with Dragons? Why was Drogon used as a plot device of rescue than expression of Danny's rejection of her compromises for peace? Well, of course, Jeff asks a really good question there with a lot of nuance to it. And the, this, the gist of it is that, yes, Danny was rescued from the pit in the show from about to, from being killed, whereas in the books, she's not really rescued so much as Drogon shows up because of all the noise and fighting and all the nastiness and all that. And that is a major factor instead. So, but it is, it is simpler, like, like we said in a lot of these plot points. I think it's just that it's, Yes. To, to answer your question directly, Jeff, yes, she, she's definitely way less ambiguous here. This is more about her versus the Sons of the Harpy and, to a lesser extent, her trying to get a hold of her dragons. And there isn't much else to it. There isn't a lot of politicking in Marine. There, that, that aspect of it hasn't been brought out. And I wonder if the showrunners didn't make a conscious decision there because, frankly, I don't agree with this, but it's, it's, well, I do agree that it's true, but I'm not one of the people that feels this way. But a lot of the fandom is a little bored with Marine. They don't like, they don't want to learn all these other characters' names and have this whole other plot that's got all this intrigue that they're not as interested in. A lot of the fandom just doesn't care about it as much. I care about it. But I can understand that that's a true thing. And that's so the showrunners are like, well, a lot of the fandom doesn't care about this, so we're not going to go too deep into it. And since they have to make some cuts, might as well make the cuts from amongst the things that are the least popular. So it, it's a little disappointing, but it's kind of a necessary evil from the show, I guess. Would you guys agree with that? Or? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they they tried to kind of represent Danny's situation. They had a few token things going on, like remember everyone hissing at Danny because she, she you know, she cut that guy's head off, and th- there was a representation of her dilemmas and political problems. But uh, you know the good or bad depending on where you stood thing about it in the books is that the political problems were so deep and interwoven they just couldn't they couldn't replicate it so they kind of you know just gave a couple of threads yeah. from that one yeah farishta 23 wants us to discuss 
the stabbing of his dar versus the books. Well, uh, Lady Gwen, you have a thought on that as well, whether you think something similar is going to happen. Well, you know, we definitely think that there's a likelihood that his dar uh, is going down in the winds of winter. Uh, we'll be talking about this in our upcoming Mega Battle of Fire episode. Which oh, yeah, good time to plug that. Go for it. Exactly. It's uh, due out in about a week. Uh, featuring guest appearances by yourself and Steve Atwell and Valkyris from Vassals of Kingsgrave and our co-host for the episode Brenda B. Fish from Wars and Politics. Yay! Uh, yeah, a good it was crew. a great crew. A lot of fun to make. Uh, but we we're going to talk about Hisdar. Um, don't see his death happening quite the same way, but I don't think he's long for the world. So, you know, I, don't, I didn't object too much to him being killed off here okay let's take a couple more questions and then circle back to answer old questions about some of the other plot lines that have come up here yoke boy first and lady gwen if you have some thoughts as well tell us about the the idea of her danny flying off one of the questions early referred to danny leaving everyone behind is that what really happened there or is is it do we have a different interpretation what you're talking in the in the show now yes off. Yeah, I, I thought she, that was my interpretation. She just flew away and left all <laughs> of her friends down there. And I thought, now how are they going to get out of there? Because there were still plenty of Sons of the Harpies encircling them. And it wasn't really clear how many uh, Unsullied they really had along with just her little core group. So um, I felt like she definitely abandoned them. <laughs> <I was> <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I thought that maybe that, uh, that was my initial reaction. And I looked back and it looked like when she's in the air that the suns were mostly fleeing by then. So maybe it's not as bad as it Perhaps, seems. Perhaps, yeah. He, the dragon but, was yeah. spitting fire and, you know, so they, they may have had good reason to flee. You could see them like going, hey, look, the dragon's gone. All right, everybody back in there. We'll get Go those get four, <laughs> right? <laughs> mop it up, yeah. So Yoke Boy, you had some, some kind of thoughts overall on the scene and kind of relates to Jeff's question earlier about the differences and in, 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 in the rescue versus character development. Yeah, I, I've got a kind of overall summary of what I thought of the scene. Some, some of it we have trodden on with the questions coming in in real time, but I thought it was a great spectacle. One which non-readers will probably completely love, I'm guessing, um, but for us grumpy book fanatics, the whole thing didn't match up to the books. The masses of harpies seemed kind of contrived and the battle was just one step too far into the kind of Hollywood corny blockbuster realm, perhaps. Um, and given they chose to have Danny in this no-hope situation, the arrival of Drogon was then a deus ex machina, you know, uh, something coming out of nowhere and saving the day. And, you know, that seems a bit sloppy in writing terms in the books George really took his time with the scene there was a really large build-up it's quite indulgent and it was set against many complications Danny had suffered or created in Marine and Drogon arriving was more about an animal hearing noise and wanting to hunt than a little girl with a kind of sickly sweet magical connection with a pet which is I, I, I kind of thought it was a bit overly sweet i don't know about you guys but um in the books she had to whip him and really risk herself and earn her place 
on the back of this huge fire breathing beast you know that that's where the kind of sense of epicness was coming from was Danny her determination to get on to to tame the animal and then get on his back and her ascent as we've uh, talked about with Bryn her ascent was more to do with it's kind of escaping this huge web of political mess rather than this kind of army of a thousand harpies um, that said, doing a scene like this was really completely unimaginable for TV before Game of Thrones came along. So you've really got to consider, you know, what a kind of step forward this is for the realm of TV and HBO are leading the way with this show. And it's great. Yeah, we, it's, it's definitely that's a very good point to make. It's always important to put things in context. Like I said earlier, we we're used to comparing this show to the books, but and it's impossible not to. There's nothing wrong with comparing it to the books, but we should also compare it to other TV shows, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's good for our own sanity. Because if we're all sitting here being critical, which a lot of us are, it's not as fun as, as finding things to like about the show. And part, you know, maybe that's just overly optimistic, but that's how I am. I want it to be fun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make effort into having more fun with it. And if that means thinking about it in different ways and trying to find ways to make myself more comfortable with what's happening... That's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to pass that along to you guys as, as best as I can. Okay, so let's take a few other questions here. Um, here's a good one. Uh, well, let me find it. Um, the question is, oh, yeah, from Mr. Step 76 did, did it surprise anyone how effective the spears thrown at Drogon were? Is it just me, or was there a point right before he and Danny flew off that he looked precarious, to say the least? Well, I, don't, I didn't actually have, I wasn't surprised by it. Um, I think this, we certainly had a spear piercing Drogon in the pit scene in the books, although it was kind of driven in, you know, by hand rather than thrown. But I think that what we're told about dragons is that their scales harden as they age, and Drogon is still fairly young. So it's not, to me, a sign that Drogon, that dragons aren't as tough as they are in this world. It's just a sign that Drogon is still young, which is something I alluded to earlier. This is a sign that Danny is not ready for Westeros yet. Her dragons are not tough enough, not strong enough, not big enough. Spears thrown at short range can pierce his armor, his scales. That is a dragon not ready to be to face an army. It's he's great in a spot like that against a disorganized mob of non-soldiers. But you know, on a battlefield where discipline is going to be tougher and where a commander can order to them to focus fire on a dragon, something along those lines. Yeah, Drogon is not ready for that. And if Drogon's not ready for it, then certainly the other dragons aren't. Okay, so related question from Pat McGinnis. It says, Maureen, who do you think is going to free the other two dragons? They were chained by the neck, so who would be able to get in there and take their steel collars off? Well, that's certainly since that happens in the books, it's a very good question and something to be thinking about as a possibility. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? We've, we've made suggestions in the past on who might do that, but I thought, nothing's really changed for me. No, I thought that they just might not free the other two dragons, just let, keep them in there until Danny makes a way back i think that's that that's the logical shortcut for that storyline i don't with there being no battle of fire you know does she really need does the story need the dragons loose i mean all that cgi and money for that i don't think so well if they decide to go that way you know we've talked a lot about i think we mentioned this even how uh dario's taken on some of the brown band plum storyline and he might be the one to suggest, geez, we really should free those dragons, and maybe he takes on that role. Maybe that's how we'll finally see the end of Dario. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, because you're right. Brown Ben Palm is the one who, he switches sides 
uh, largely in part she because she says she won't be able to deploy the dragons in war, which is a parallel here. She she says you won't deploy them because she she doesn't know how to. And yeah, that's that's what's on display here. She just now learned to ride. She's got a, l a little more work to do before she can learn go to fight. Okay, we're running out of time. Let's take a couple more questions and then do our outro and trailer discussion. Here's one. We're circling back to some Stannis topics. Uh, let's see. First question comes from Teflon TV. Tony Teflon. First, just like to say I have both of you guys' shows and I've learned a lot about the series by doing so. My question is, do you think we will get the pink letter? And if so, who do you think wrote it in the books and show? Thank you and stay sexy. Cheer! <laughs> yeah, well, Tony Teflon has is a, a great YouTuber who is, if you guys don't know, has a great uh, entertaining show, very informative, very good thinker about uh, the, the series in general, knows the books very well. So thanks, Tony, for the question. Um, I think that we might get the pink letter in the show. There's some hint that maybe John is receiving, is looking at a lot of letters. Small spoiler for the trailers discussion, but that's, that's hardly a, a, a spoiler. He's looking at some letters. It may be letters he's going to send. It may be something he's received. So I definitely think it's possible. What do you guys think? Is that, is that something you kind of see as a possibility or think we're going to see that skipped? Um, I think that he could, they could just leave it out because Davos requesting troops could kind of serve the function that the plot requires. Mm. Gwyn, person doing it, yeah. Gwyn, have you got any ideas? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess I'm of two minds. It could either go, you know, we just have this this Davos comes with a letter and requests troops, and maybe John says, "I'm going to go there now." Uh, that prompts something. Well, Tony also wanted us to know who wrote, who we think wrote it in the in the books. Well, we're, we're short on time, so we can't go into a too deep of an explanation as to why we think who it is. I personally am very fooled. I think George has done a wonderful job of writing the pink letter in a way that it gives us a lot of very valid possibilities. I think most of the possibilities that have been thrown out there are valid, which is weird because I usually can eliminate a couple of them. But I think Mance is possible. Ramsey certainly could have done it. It could be the straightforward thing. It could have been Stannis. After all, Stannis has a Dreadfort Maester on site, so that could be where he has the pink sealing wax. But I, I, I am not willing to commit to one answer. Yeah. <laughs> in our battle of ice, I, I, was, I was fairly confident it was Ramsey. But I've never been super confident in that. I just think if I had to pick, I would guess it's it was Ramsey. But I could definitely see it being Stannis or, or Mance. Even it's got know. it's got a lot of um, it's got a lot of wildling terminology. So I think I think Man uh, Mance is worth a look. But mm. it, we can't really go through it now. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely too long of a topic for the last few minutes we have here. So it's a good question though, and I hope you guys send your feedback on that. I'm sure we'll, some of you will have great. Uh, thoughts on that from stephanie anderson what if anything do you guys make of george r. r martin's recent statement regarding the knight's king could this mean that there have been several different leaders or kings of the others over millennia it could but i took that to mean that there is no boss white walker in the series which we alluded to in our analysis of the hard home episode is that is that for, but actually before i ask your guys's opinion on that i need to back up a little bit george r, r. martin recently said that knight's king was a legendary figure along the lines of Land the Clever or Brandon the Builder, and is no more likely to be around than they are, which some people took to, you know, mean that they're all around. They're all Land the Clever is still yeah, existing. Oh my god. <laughs> but that mostly that mostly that was said in jest, but Good. Yeah, so So I think that the, this this reinforces what we're thinking that the White Walkers are a race and not just some hierarchy where there's just a one guy at the top or one girl at the top. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's they have their nice. own society. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 
We'll have to wait and see, but it does seem pretty pretty likely. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's see here. Our let's let's do our quick credits, and we'll get into some trailer discussion, which will include a few more questions. Our Hand of the King and First Lord Cash Craig, a.k.a. Vaxis, on the History of Westeros Forums. I'm thanking our Patreon people here, for those of you who don't know. Our Warden of the North is Lord Parker, the Bastard of Starkville, Breaker of the First Stone. Our Warden of the West is Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of a Song of Ice and Fire blog. The Master of Coin and First Counselor is Lord Robert Jacobs. Our Master of Whisperers is Lord James the Scholar. Grand Maester Itai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws, and Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. History of Westeros, Night's Watch, Lord Commander is George the Golden. History of Westeros, Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. Sir Troy the Steady swings the Valyrian steel blade, Fate, as the History of Westeros, King's Justice. Lady Dyer Liz of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Nathan of the Firefort, Dan of the Red Mountains, Lord of Great Bell, and Breaker of the Second Stone. And Lord, Lady April Lauren Boyd Stark of Castle, currently unnamed, round out our list of lordly lords. So remember, everybody, we're going to be live again next week. You can post questions on the event as soon as we post the event, which should be up shortly after this episode goes live to non-live viewers, that is. So let's talk about the trailer real quick. Folks, if you don't want to be spoiled on the trailer, thanks again for joining us today and Valar Morgullis. There seems to be a theme here with us, these episodes lately, me really rushing to get to the stuff at the end. So the biggest thing from the trailer is it seems that the storm does break for Stannis and Melisandre. And whether or not that's a coincidence or the Lord of Light doing his work, we don't know. But the siege begins at sunrise, so to speak, is what Stannis says. So apparently there's going to be some action there. Very, very interesting. Do you guys have thoughts on that or is that just a kind of a wait and see moment? Um, I, I don't think the whole battle will play out. I think it will be left over the season. It's, I think it will be a slow, uh. si- slow siege. I think there will be a bit of action, but I don't think it will be resolved. We see John sitting with papers, kind of maybe struggling to decide how to tell the realm about the Night's King and the walkers and what's happening, uh, how to get them to believe him. Uh, or she could be reading the pink letter, or both, something along those lines. So basically, that's what we see of him, is sitting there reading papers. Is he reading well, papers because Sam isn't there to, to read them for him? Oh, yeah. We also theorized Sam going to Old Town. We thought that would happen last episode, or this episode, rather, and it didn't. So maybe that'll happen this next episode. But yeah, that could be. Uh, Sam being gone, he may have more work to do. Uh, we're going to see Brienne and Podrick. Finally, maybe a little action from them. They've been waiting in the wings a bit. We see Sansa struggling, maybe preparing to give up on something unless she gets the ability. We have a comment from Kate Farrell. Sansa's line from the preview. If I die, I want to die while there's still something left of me. Makes me think she's going to do something dramatic against the Boltons. Maybe letting Stannis in. Outright killing Ramsay. Something along those lines. Hope Sansa gets her own drama on Sunday. Yes. We're with you there. (laughs) Yeah, that's how I interpreted that. She's going to do something. Try to escape or do something dramatic remember so we might see the jump i mean right. the, the fact stannis is outside she'd rather die and, and, than stay there and wait remember Littlefinger uh, told her stannis would save her so and then and then if she does the jump that could have been the girl that melisandre saw walking along winterfell battlements and mel could be wrong which she probably is with all, is. all the stuff <laughs> speaking of brienne and pod Kate Farrell also suggests the possibility that Brienne is in the North to kill Stannis. And yeah. now that Stannis is even more unlikable, 
that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. I could see that happening. I'm not really sure how Brienne could get to Stannis. And I don't know that it's going to happen that way because I think that there's a lot of evidence that Stannis will still be alive for quite a while in the books. And it would be weird for them to kill him off this soon. But it doesn't have to be soon. It could be near the end of next season, you know. But that's it's kind of hard to predict, though. Um... Let's see here. Uh, the the big one of the biggest things that we are that is surprising to me was an interview by Jessica Henwick, who is Nymeria. I thought maybe that the Dornish plotline was over for the season, but she in an interview recently said that a, they make a big move in a Game of Thrones, and the Sand Snakes are a part of it. Maybe this is one of the reasons why Bronn still might be in danger. So, wow, what, wow, there. <laughs> I wonder what they're going to do. Maybe we're going to see a Dark Star moment well, where Marcella gets cut up or attacked. Or it could be just be a reveal of the plan that Doran and Ilaria have, or just Doran has, or just just Ilaria has. And it could be something happening to Jamie or to Bronn, or to Marcella. I don't know. That's it's. I'm pretty excited, though, now to find out what that's going to be. Do you guys have any thoughts on that, or is that just a, a wow mm -hmm. moment? Just... Wow. No, no idea. Wow. <laughs> it's, it references a couple of questions here, like Jeff Byland, who, who wants to know about the quick turnaround. Could we be in for one more rebellion attempt that plays out similar to Ari Ensfeld move? Yes, I, that's exactly what I'm alluding to here. That, that's what I meant by the Dark Star moment. So I think if, if they do, I think they'll kill Marcella. That would be a big kick in the butt. Well, all these young princesses getting killed. <laughs> yeah. before That would be a theme. That, Jeez. That would show that they do harm little girls in Dorne. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> Not that we didn't already know that. Mm. Okay, let me look here. Do we have any other questions that just have to be answered? A lot of these really good questions you guys asked that we just couldn't get to. Some of them were similar enough to questions that we already asked. So thank you very much to everyone for tuning in, for asking great questions. Um, we really appreciate the, the quality of these questions that allow us to ask them and answer them gives, gives everybody else a more entertaining show. So the, our endeavors to make this more of a community effort are really paying off for everybody. And that makes me very happy. Proud of you, proud of you all, proud of ourselves. And we've only got one week left. One more episode should be a lot of fun. And then we'll have a long wait again, but it also means we get back to book topics. And Radio Estrus, I know you guys are excited for the last episode, but you're also excited to get back to non-TV topics. One more time, tell us where to find you guys. Yeah, we've got a YouTube channel, Radio Estrus. Come and check out our, our podcasts. We've, they're about, you know, all your favorite characters. And go to RadioEstrus.com, our central hub. All the podcasts are there. Yeah, come and check us out. We'd, we'd love to, to get more audience, so it'd be cool. Right on. Uh, looks like someone, Johannes Petman, has sent me advice through a question on how to find questions on specific subjects. Okay, well, thanks, Johannes. I'll be able to do that next time to get through this quicker and do it more efficiently. Already felt more comfortable with this than from Monday, so learning curve isn't too bad. But thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We will see you all next time. If you want to contribute to History of Westeros financially, you can go to our website, click on the donate button. Typical amounts, 5, 10, 15, 20, 50. Whatever you feel is appropriate, we will certainly appreciate it. And so will everyone else because it helps us make a better show. We're looking forward to our upcoming technical improvements, new camera, more lighting. We're currently shopping on all that. And we can't wait to continue to improve the show and to bring a better product to everybody. Looking forward to that last episode, folks. Valar Margolis.